In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Welcome to this edition of Money Tales. Sandy here. It's obvious that money conversations are filled with words. In today's interview, we talk with Tina Lovejoy, who shares thoughts on choosing the right words and clarifying the meaning of those words to have productive discussions. All this is driven by Tina's fascinating background and her current career responsibilities. Cami here. Tina is trained as an opera singer and has extensive freelance writing experience. She's clearly someone who lives by the motto, every word matters. Tina focuses her career today in helping high-capacity families discover their values to guide their intentions with their wealth, their charity, and their passions. Building on this discussion, in today's financial insight at the end, we provide some tips on how to start a money conversation. First, here's the interview with Tina Lovejoy. Hello, Tina Lovejoy. Welcome to Money Tales. Great to be here. We are so excited about this conversation, and to help get it started, we'd love for you to tell us briefly about the journey of your life, maybe focusing on two to three pivotal moments that really make you the person who you are today. Sure. Well, I like to look at that through the lens of meaningful work or purposeful tasks. So a couple stopping points or chapters along the way. I trained as a classical singer, sang professionally off and on for a few years, then I also taught and coached singers, and also people who had always wanted to sing, but had been told somewhere in their life, they had no voice. And that really acquainted me with the concept of how longing and frustrated dreams show up in people's lives. I've also done a bit of freelance writing and consulting, and that led me to where I am today, which is facilitating family sessions for estate planning clients. That's fantastic. There's a lot in there. Some really big pivots, it sounds like we want to dive into that. But first, could you just tell us a little bit about your childhood, Tina? Where did you grow up? What was the environment like in your home? And specifically, how was money handled in your home as you were growing up? Yes, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. We lived on property. So natural beauty factored into my childhood. I spent a lot of time running around the woods and connecting with simple beauty that cost nothing other than what it cost my parents to buy the property. (laughs) But to me, from a kid's perspective, it didn't cost anything to step out the door and go play. And that really stayed with me in terms of how money and pleasure intersect or don't. So in terms of money, my dad was an entrepreneur and he really modeled for me what it looks like to be willing to put money toward something that matters, something that has deep meaning, and that that's worth the risk. He modeled that year in, year out. From my mom, she absolutely modeled how to stretch a dollar. 
she could weave magic from very little. And it's just her, whether we had a lot or a little in any season, my mom made things beautiful uh, based on what she had. That's great, Tina. Were they talking about money? Was this a, something you all talked about in day-to-day conversations? Did your parents talk about it? I can't remember my parents sitting us down specifically and talking about money. You know, as I say that, actually, that's not true. They would sit us down and have family meetings about allowances. So, woo, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a memory that just came flowing back. <laughs> yes. So that's twofold. I'll talk about that first and then go into my, the concept with my dad's work. So they would sit us down and say, okay, here's your allowance for the week. However, at one point, I was probably around 11 or 12. My parents sat us down and said, instead of an allowance this time, we're going to allow you to pick out something you want to work toward. It can be a bike. It could be something technology-wise, something that you're going to work toward over the next few months. And I remember the absolute delight of being able to choose whatever I wanted within a certain, they did have a cap on the, <laughs> on, on the dollar amount, but it was a quite a generous dollar amount. And I remember thinking, I get to work toward this. I'm unique in this. I get to work toward something different than my brothers and sister. And that was very compelling and very motivating. Yeah. What did you choose? I chose a bike a really nice bike. So then I could go ride around the country roads with my best friend. So I want to say it was over the span of maybe four to five months. So it was a doable time frame for a kid of that age. And you I knew what remember- you had to do. You knew it. And you, you had that goal in mind. Yes. And I had that picture of it because I had chosen it. I had picked it out. Yes. It was, I remember that being very fun. We worked hard I remember working really hard for it, but wow, it felt amazing to earn that. What a great lesson. Yes. Yes. And then the, I said that was a twofold answer. So the second part of that was in terms of specific money conversations, my dad being an entrepreneur worked out of our house a lot. And so he had his own home office. And so there was very much a seamlessness between his work life and home life where his business conversations were happening before school or at dinner. And so it very much normalized those conversations for me. And he would talk about, okay, we got this account or we lost this account. Um, So even though he wasn't naming specific dollar amounts, that concept of working towards something that may or may not pan out stayed with me and the risk inherent within that. Would he get your, your input on items, on things? How would you solve a problem? You know, sometimes he would. He was great about that. I remember I was just, for some reason, smitten with office supplies. (laughs) So (laughs) I remember he had these leather-bound American Express day planners that they would send to their clients. And he would say, hey, I'm I'm not going to use this. Do you want this? And I thought it was the world to have that beautiful leather-bound business planner. Not just any planner, a business planner. So in little ways, he would sprinkle that in. He would talk about new product development or a business trip he was taking. So he normalized it in that way. Jumping off the allowance situation, did you work at all between that time period and when you left to go to school? I did. In fact, my first taste of entrepreneurism was, of course, my my parents laid the foundation in that. They had many colorful chapters in terms of different projects they had over the years. And one of them was they decided to buy a raspberry farm. I don't know why. I would have to ask them. They weren't especially into agriculture, but they bought a raspberry farm. 
And I remember my dad saying, hey, kids, if you want a way to earn money this summer, you can, if you want, go get clients. You can pick as many raspberries as you want. We won't charge you. It'll be pure profit, but you have to put in the work. And I remember, right? It's great. Yes. And so it taught me about, well, not cold calling, warm calling, you know, who were the family friends who may be interested and feeling that anticipation and nerves of, are they going to think I'm too salesy? Are they going to not like, (laughs) you know, are they not going to like me after this because I asked them to buy something? I remember thinking that of how do I approach this where it's okay for them to say no, which is true in business, right? To interact with people where they're free to say no, and it's still good. I learned that lesson really early. I think it was- Amazing lessons. Yes. I think it was probably- Again, maybe 12 or 13 at that point. And so I worked really hard, got a lot of different family friends who said yes. And I knew how to, I knew it was a great product because I loved to eat the raspberries. So I would tell them, <laughs> I would say, I eat these every morning out on the raspberry farm. I can assure you they're delicious. I will pick you the freshest raspberries. You know, I was, my heart was in it. <laughs> and really, you learn the, the sales process and the business process from that of, having the product there, but getting that product ready, getting, putting it into the containers, making sure they're full enough, but not overly full because you need to get to your next order and being sure to deliver them on time. That was one thing of, okay, I worked all day or all morning picking these, but I need to go deliver these this afternoon. So I need to pace my energy so I can go have, interact with them well and not be too tired to smile at them. And so it taught me a lot, and I made, I made a, a tidy little profit that summer. Tina, when did you discover your singing voice? You know, early on, my mom said I could talk, or excuse me, could sing before I talked. But in terms of formal training, I started with piano, and then around 15 is when I took my first voice lesson and was immediately taken by it because of the foreign languages having to translate word for word, having to dig for that meaning, I thought it was the most incredible process. So say more about that. You were, you know, when I think of singing training, I don't think of foreign languages, but this is your opera work? It was. So I went to a voice teacher and she said, no matter what you want to sing, I train every singer in a classical technique, and then you can use that as a jumping off point. And so she gave me an Italian um, art song and talked me through, here's how to learn. Before you ever sing a note, you look at the words and, and we'll do a word for word translation so you know exactly what you're singing. And it was incredible training for working with families today or just being able to look and saying, how does language work at the very core level? And how do words have relationships with one another in a phrase or in a sentence? It, I really look at it as incredible training for, being, for active listening because you're learning to look at text within context. That's a neat way of pulling language apart that has really, I don't think I could train it out of my brain at this point. I certainly (laughs) don't want to try to. (laughs) And when did you decide that you were going to pursue classical singing as a career? I think right around 16. I just knew I loved the process. Loved, loved, loved the, I loved the study of it. I loved um, how endless it was and that I, that it was very, very difficult to master. And I realized really quickly, I'm like, I could work the rest of my life at this and probably not be able to master that. And I loved that challenge. So I 
studied really seriously through high school and did competitions and then went on to major in voice in Boston and San Francisco. And was money factoring into any of the decisions you were making at that time about pursuing a career in this area? Well, money warnings were certainly coming my way. (laughs) And I think it's an important conversation to have for anyone who goes into something that is more of a passion project of that passion can be there and you can work really hard at it, but you also need to have a way to fend for yourself. And how is that going to pan out? And I know a, a lot of young adults at the age don't want to have that conversation or think it'll all just It'll all just work out, but it's important to think about. My parents were incredible within that because they were subtle with those conversations, but they also knew, they made it very clear, if you're willing to work this hard at it, you'll find a way. It might be a tough road for you. It might be a harder road. Your payoff is going to look different. Your payoff might not be financial, but it might be in terms of life balance or feeling really emotionally fulfilled. So they were very clear to state that to me, you know, that it's very few of us can have everything in one moment. So choose what matters and and aim at that. That's amazing. They were the ones willing to have that conversation with you because it's such an important one. Absolutely. And I think you can hear that, but the reality sets in later when you're working and working and working at something and going, oh, wow, this paycheck is tiny. I get it. (laughs) This is really small. This doesn't go very far. Tina, before you got to the paycheck part and you were hearing these warnings, subtle from your parents, maybe not so subtle from others, were you registering that? Did it take up any of your attention or tell us how how that went for you? It definitely factored in because I'm a, in terms of how I view money, my money personality or tendency, I'm cautious by nature with that. So it did factor in. I did think, I I don't think I voiced this to anyone, but I did think, am I crazy for, for choosing this or is this just a pipe dream or am I foolish? And it's interesting. I hadn't even thought of this connection until now. So thank you for this. But I think I really drew from my mom's modeling of how to stretch a dollar and that I knew I could choose what types of beauty and what types of meaning I wanted in my life. And I could do that on maybe less money than someone else could do it on. I I knew I had that capacity and that was normal to me. That was normalized in my home. Can you bring that to life a little bit? What'd you do? And how long was this period of your life? Mm, Good question. I think just in terms of goodness, I think in terms of, okay, in young adulthood where someone else who chose a different career path would have more disposable income. So shopping to them meant going out and buying a new outfit or two or three. Shopping to me meant I'm going to buy the newest edition of Vogue magazine and a smoothie. That was my indulgence because my budget was so much less. But I also had the payoff of loving every second of the work I was doing and knowing that I was willing to make that trade-off. So I think like things like that or driving an older car versus someone who chose a different career path could go out and buy a brand new, beautiful label automobile. That to me was not a priority. I Sure, would it be nice? Yes. But I remember thinking, it's nice not to have that car payment. You prioritized and you focused on your passion. What part of your life, how long were you doing this? So I had stop and start, very all or nothing mindset, which, is a <laughs> which was my own journey, right? That's part of what comes with maturity is learning nuance and that life has a lot of gray area and things do not have to be black or white very often. So it was, it was off and on 
through my mid-20s to mid-30s, about a decade off and, off and on. And I was also teaching and coaching singers during that time and writing as well, doing quite a fair share of writing. And what were you writing about? I did some freelance writing for different businesses from a client perspective, sort of a, a non-expert voice. So it was a fascinating way to look at, look at different industries and write as a non-expert. And then just a lot of, I did a bit of blogging and then a lot of just writing is just part of my life in general as well. So it was bits and pieces here and there with project-based, I would say. And this was all done just to be able to pay the bills or... You know, it was, but it was also a passion project because money, excuse me, writing, (laughs) I don't think anyone necessarily goes into for a big payoff, right? So it was definitely the purpose of it that drove it. And then it was a nice bonus to be paid. But yes, it was helping to cover the bills and cobbling together these different streams of income. And I very much drew from my dad's entrepreneurial background for that, realizing this can be done. You need to get creative with it. You need to be tenacious and continue to hone your skills. And I just knew, just like with money, right? We talk about differentiating or looking at different ways to minimize or alleviate risk. I would say minimize risk. It's very similar in entrepreneurism, right? If you have multiple streams of income, that's going to minimize your risk. You're not putting all of your energy in one direction. And you're currently not a professional singer, correct? Correct. No, okay. I am in a, a different chapter right now. So, yes. so tell us about um, changing chapters, turning that page. Tell us about that process. Yeah. So I think the interim, the connecting piece was doing, going from writing into a bit of consulting for businesses. And the door that I walked through was the writing door where I initially was hired to write for them. And then they said, hey, we really like your ideas how about some consulting? And so those contracts grew based on ideas. And through that work and then working with singers, I started to find that the through line with all of that was finding the essence or finding the true story, whether it was for that business and their idea or their marketing or for a singer saying, hey, I hear this manipulation in your sound, but when you sing this way and really freed up, that's a more compelling sound. That's a sound that people connect with. So there's a definite parallel there. And yes, now I facilitate sessions for families, high capacity families, as we say in my corner of the industry. And I really draw from the writing background that I have, the consulting background, and the singing and and teaching background, because honing your ear to listen for essence, honing your ear for how language is used, absolutely factors into conversations surrounding core values and estate planning. It's definitely a a backdoor into the type of work I'm doing, but it feels like a natural extension of all of those streams. Are you surprised by where you've ended up at this point? Both yes and no. Yes, in terms of the specific industry and no in terms of the dailiness of the work. The dailiness of the work feels like of course, of course, like it just, it feels absolutely right. The industry itself, that part was a learning curve, but it was fun. And, and I, I still learn every single day. Which is great. Can you just make sure I understand what's a high capacity family? High capacity we can use in different ways. A lot of times it's families who are very intentional about their work, their business, their wealth generating. A lot of times it's also Uh, high net worth or ultra high net worth families as well. So 
That's great. Intentional then. Yes. A lot of families who are drawn to the service that we're offering are in that arena where they're already very highly intentional and they're looking to refine their focus that much more. Tina, would you tell us what role has money played in your adult life? It has meant different things in different chapters. I will say the most dramatic shift was going through a divorce and money really went, I think prior to that, I viewed money through the lens of possibility, right? Of, okay, what vacation can we plan? What fun thing do I want to do after a divorce? And I, I, in sitting and talking with quite a few women who have had their own divorce stories, I have found that I'm not alone in this where money becomes much more about provision and it can usher women into survival mode where it's about, okay, I just need to make sure things are taken care of. I don't have a safety net in terms of a partner or whatever that may look like. And it becomes very much about provision first. So I would say that shift from possibilities or fun to provision, it gets real when you go through divorce. (laughs) It gets very real. Can you say more about that? Divorce is a big transition. So so we're not surprised to hear you say that there is a shift, but it would just be great to just hear more about what cause that shift for you and how you're thinking about it after the fact. Congruent with the divorce was a move to a different region of the country with a new line of work. So there were a lot of changes going on. And I think anytime we're in seasons of upheaval, um, and I think we can all relate to this in our own ways, whether it's someone going through a divorce or someone dealing with death in the family or a change of career, change of season in life, whatever it may be trouble with their children, whatever it may be, when the ground starts undulating and it doesn't feel as solid, we're looking for something to, to hold on to, something that's a safe anchor. And so I think it, that part shifts our relationship with money. I know it certainly shifted mine. And even though, as I said earlier, I tend to be careful. I'm a saver by nature in terms of money. It was reinforced through all of the upheaval, all of the change. And it, it, the strange gift in it is it helps clarify that much more what really matters. What do you care about? What's essential? Whatever is not essential right now, toss it. And if you need to grieve that, if you need to grieve, oh, I can't take a vacation anymore, grieve it. That's something to grieve. And it's, that's, not too, that's not too small to grieve. That's not silly to grieve. It's important because it's a change, of, it's a change in your reality. Um, So it's something I've talked with a number of women about, you know, when your life starts to look different, let yourself grieve that, you know, let yourself say, man, this hurts that we can't go have those fun adventures together in this chapter. And let that motivate you to say, this interim chapter is not forever. That can be back in a new, fresh, even more lovely way than it was before. But right now, this chapter is going to feel intense and tough and painful. (laughs) Those are great insights, I think. An unfortunate part of the human brain is we, we do tend to think that whatever situation we're in at the moment is one that will last <laughs> forever. And so that's a really good reminder that situations don't tend to last forever. You get through them. And I love the focus on, on what matters most and the purpose. What matters most to you today? One of my core values is connection. I like to say I have a love-hate relationship with connection, right? It's important to me 
And yet I think sometimes things that we care about so much, we can also push away, right? It's like, oh, I love it so much. I'm not sure. Let me just put it on a shelf over there. So I would say putting time, attention, and money toward moments, activities, anything that leads toward greater connection with self or with others. Along those lines, what do you think money cannot buy? I think money to a certain extent can buy happiness because it can bring us comfort, but money cannot buy joy. And there's a difference between happiness and joy. Will you tell us what the difference is? Yes. I mean, in my own experience, happiness is very situational, right? Ooh, I'm happy. I'm feeling great. It's a good day. Joy comes from a deeper place. I think joy has grit to it that happiness in all its frothy fun maybe doesn't have the capacity for. (laughs) Joy has some roots. Joy has strength to it. And joy has fortitude. I'm loving this conversation, Tina. Your love of language is really coming to life in such a beautiful way. It's really fun. So another question for you. In, in the work that you're doing right now, you're continually talking to families, clients about money, and you're having these important money conversations, which as you know, <laughs> we at Money Tales are, are big fans of that. We think it's so important for people to have productive conversations about money, and having conversations about money can be awkward. So, Tina, share with us some of the ways and maybe even some of the words and phrases that you use to open up money conversations in a productive and comfortable way. Yes. Well, I think the fascinating thing with language is each of us responds to different words differently, right? So I can have a favorite word and someone else can loathe that word and say, oh, I'm so repulsed by that word, or that word is so cliche. So I think part of it is to have a sense of what someone else connects with. How, how do they inhabit their own linguistic world, right? To get heady about it for a moment. But one word that I love that I think most, if not all of us, are drawn to is when I think about money and purpose and meaning, I think of the word love. And I have many conversations with both friends and clients in terms of get really clear on what you love and why do you love that? Why do you love that thing or that moment or that person or that experience? And then direct your energy toward it and direct your money toward it. Because as we do that, that brings about more of that love in the world. And we all need more of that. It's a great conversation right? To ask someone, what is love to you? What does that look like? It's a very, very easy question to ask. It's incredibly difficult to answer. Do you want to try for us? (laughs) (laughs) How long do you have? (laughs) As long as it takes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, love for me is tied to meaning and it's tied to freedom. And by freedom, I mean being released from any constraint dealing with shame, love to me involves peace. So peace, meaning, and freedom are inherent in love in my working definition. This conversation is reminding me of an observation that one of our colleagues had made earlier this summer. And that is that there's really only one word for love and everyone has their own meaning. But for money, There's tons of ways that we refer to money, right? Moolah, cheddar, cabbage. I mean, the list goes on. 
Why do you think that is, Tina? Have you ever given that any thought? That's a great question. I have considered the terminology. Yes, I know there have been many an article written about how language in finance is very skewed. It often can be very aggressive language, very almost hard-edged. And so that has stood out to me. Why is that? Why do we view it that way when money can be put towards so many different types of, again, things or experiences? Why does it have this hard-edged connotation with a lot of the language? And there there are different theories about that. I don't have a clear answer for it, but I have a, a thought and a question with that is I wonder if it is to keep us distanced from the concept because money is a very vulnerable thing. And if we use hard-edged language, we get to distance ourselves from that vulnerability. I think that's an, that raises an interesting question. What is more vulnerable, money or love? What creates more vulnerability? Whew. I guess it depends. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and how much are they intertwined? Right? Yeah, I was going to say, sometimes the combination <laughs> of the two can be <laughs> very yeah. powerful. Well, and I think of that old proverb, where your heart is, your treasure is, and conversely, where your treasure is, your heart is. So in a lot of ways, they're very interwoven. And how do you separate the two? How do you define financial success? Mm, Financial success, again, I think it's akin to someone's individual purpose. It is one of a kind for each of us. Financial success to me cannot be separated from purpose. If I reach every financial goal I have, but I am aimless and purposeless, that is not success at all. It's nowhere near it. So for me, again, I think it goes back to my definition of love. Financial success also involves peace and meaning and freedom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if it has those three elements, that's going to feel like success to me. And it's such a great question because you look and go for each of us, right? That, That word success is so broad and so general. It's an important question to ask someone, not only what is your version of success, but specifically, what is it tied to? Is it tied to things? Is it tied to moments? Is it tied to people? What anchors that or what frees it? Tina, do you spend much time thinking about money, your own money situation? I do. I think about it in terms of building a structure that I will be safe within. So, and I think a lot of that, again, is tied to shifting chapters in my life. Again, going back to that, where money at one point represented possibility, and in that season that came after, it represented provision. To me, I'm aiming at at that blend, where it's both provision and possibility, and that they're working in harmony. So I do. I think about, again, being wise, stretching a dollar, and no matter what my portfolio looks like or my income looks like, that to me is a sense of fun attached with money is how do I continue to stretch a dollar and be creative with my spending and get really, really purposeful? Because as I do it, I feel more and more freedom around money. Tina, what does the future look like to you? I continually have retirement in the back of my mind, but it is very much tied to purpose for me. Again, purpose and freedom and meaning, man, peace, purpose, freedom, and meaning. I go back to what do I love? I love deep, meaningful conversations with people and I love to write. And so when I think about planning and financial goals, I think of what can I do to allow more and more 
of those types of moments into my life where I have more freedom and more capacity for deep, meaningful conversations and to be able to write about it. So retirement isn't necessarily to stop working. It's to do more of what you're passionate about. For me, the more financial structure I have, the more possibility opens up. Tina, as you talk about all of this, you sound very confident. You sound very in control, very intentional about your money decisions. Does it feel that way to you? Not often. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think here's the thing. There's such a learning curve with money. It's such a huge concept. And I think there often can be the unspoken expectation that we all somehow have some mastery over our financial options. And what I've found in conversations with people is that's not often how they're experiencing it. They feel overwhelmed. They feel shut down. They don't know where to start. And I have my own versions of all of those experiences as well. And so again, for me, I go back to my goal and my job is not to copy someone else's financial plan. It's not to try to live up to someone else's savings percentage or net worth. My goal is to stay on track with what my purpose is. And if my purpose is freedom and meaning and peace, deep conversations and writing, then that's the structure that my plan can take place. And so that for me is clarifying. There are so many opportunities and options within the world of finance to write this this investment or, or this part of your plan or this part of your portfolio. The learning curve is endless and that in itself overwhelms me. And so it's like, get clear on what you care about and build toward that and allow yourself to shut out noise and allow yourself to call it noise. It might not always be noise to you. You might come back around and say, okay, I've learned this. Now I have more capacity to take a bit more information in. But for right now, that really helps me. I'm just going to call all of this noise right now. I've reached my threshold. I can't take it anymore. (laughs) Is that really what you do? You just kind of stop and go through a checklist more or less? Yep. Yeah. And it's not even, it's not even a physical checklist. It's inside like, okay, am I being responsible today? Am I doing what I need to do today? If the answer is yes, take a breather, celebrate that. Cause I think that is a key component that's missing. Mm-hmm. We very, very rarely stop and celebrate our financial wins. It's like, Oh, what do I need to do next? What do I do? Right. Take a breather. Even if it's just a moment and say, well done to yourself. Hey, you're doing it. Hey, you're consistent. Hey, you're getting it done you're good. Take that moment, just rest into it. And then, and that's part of the learning curve as well. Then we have more capacity to take in the next bit of information. It's a very simple shift in mindset, but it's my own way. (laughs) It's wonderful that you're sharing that because I think, again, going back to the importance of money conversations in most people's day-to-day life, we're not talking like this. We're not sharing with each other how we're making decisions. And so I think oftentimes people can get just in their heads and and really analyze themselves in a way that might not be as productive or may not celebrate the moments of success at whatever level it is in terms of making a money-related decision. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah, that's such a good point. And it's interesting because you look and go in other areas of life, right? We know or we hear, hey, It's not only about head, it's about your body, right? Our body is telling us information all the time. When there's that head-body disconnect, we might not be making fully considered decisions. 
And when it comes to finance, it's so heady, it's so technical that it's, have we ever contemplated the option to invite our body into that and say, okay, I'm just going to sit with, how am I even experiencing this conversation right now? Does my body feel cold? Does it feel tense? Does it feel shaky? Does it feel like it wants to run out of the room? Like, what is my body experiencing when I even say the word money or when I say the word finance? Or when you hear someone say the word portfolio, right? What's your physical response to that? Because that's giving us some good information on where we're really at with that. Would you share with us how you're feeling this in your body right now, this conversation? Interesting. Yes. Right before this conversation started, I noticed I was feeling cold and shaky, and that can be both anticipation and nerves. It reminded me actually of a quieter version of how I used to feel before auditions. And so I reminded myself that this is not an audition. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's true. And I I think there's a parallel to how does someone feel before they go have a formalized money conversation? Does it feel like an audition to them? Do they feel like they have to show up and perform? Or do they feel like they can show up and have a conversation and feel free to say, I don't know, or feel free to say, I don't really care about that right now. It's an important thought to have. And even just saying that, for me, I know physically, if I feel warmth come back into my hands, I likely have calmed down in that moment, which I do Okay, I was just going to ask. Of course. (laughs) Yes. But again, it helps us know not only where our heads are at, but where are our bodies at in that and bringing our full selves into those conversations. And again, that can be cliche, right? But it's true. Tina, Do you have these conversations, especially the financial component, doesn't have to be the details, but with your friends, outside of clients and things like that? I'm sure you talk purpose and meaning, I can tell. Are you having some sort of money conversations with your friends? You know, to some extent we are by virtue of of the work that I do, but I will say it still is a very, I think it's one of the topics that is discussed the least from my end as well, because it's very personal and who wants to be invasive or ask a question that's pushy, but there are ways to have conversations that aren't bringing up dollar amounts. A lot of it can stay conceptual and be incredibly helpful. So yes. And I, strangely enough, I think one of the key markers of bringing more of those conversations into my life was my divorce because I was, had so much upheaval and was asking people about their own experiences. What did I need to watch out for? What did I need to consider? What was I maybe not seeing? So it started to normalize more of those types of conversations versus just trucking along, feeling a sense of mastery in life. And, you know, hopefully that's encouragement for all of us that when we go through those hard seasons, again, we get very strange and often beautiful gifts out of those seasons where we often end up having more real conversations than we had prior to it. So I certainly take that from that season. And it goes back to what you were speaking about earlier about connection, right? When we have those deeper conversations with one another, it creates connection. And and there is some normalization and some learning that happens. Absolutely. And as we bring more humanity into the conversations around finance, that's when I notice, myself included, that's when people relax because it's not just about dollar amounts, right? It's not just, you know, hyper-focusing on a number, but it's taking in 
the completion of who is that person? What are they aiming at? What do they care about? Again, what do they love? What do they love? Why do they wake up in the morning? Why do they work so hard? What do they care about? That's a compelling conversation that very, very few people will shy away from. And it's such an important conversation to making money decisions, as you've already pointed out. It is. And it's often bringing in the little details that we're not even realizing that factor in. Perfect point was earlier when you asked about childhood money stories or money lessons. And for me, not even realizing how my mom's wisdom with money factored into my day-to-day in this chapter, right? So as we have those conversations, we start to fill in the blanks for ourselves and we learn ourselves better. I'm reflecting back on your feeling of the word money being cold and sharp and having hard angles. And I think that goes back to the numbers component versus the conversation is the softer side of money or the right brain of the, you know, that's still so helpful if we're talking about it. And I think about you stretching a dollar. I like that you brought that up and I'd love to understand how you think about having those conversations going forward. If you're going to tackle them in a different way, how would you approach it going forward? Yeah, I think you brought up a great point that stretching a dollar or that mindset of being intentional is not dependent on what you make or don't make. It is not tied to net worth. It's really tied to intention. So I'm so glad you mentioned that. Absolutely. I think in terms of money conversations, again, it goes back to, as you were talking about that, I I pictured the, the purpose and the love being the structure, being a home or I don't know, a a mountain cabin or a shed, right? A shed maybe holding tools, but the dollar amount is just like the chimney. It's just something that passes through. It's not the structure itself. And again, we can hyper-focus on that because money equals possibility and it equals many, many different things. But I think we tend to hyper-focus on money, which is the outcome rather than what got us there. And again, as I sit with clients, that's something that has fascinated me that I've seen a pattern of over and over and over is from the outside view looking in, a lot of people, I I would say in our culture at large, view that and say, oh, they aimed at money and they got money. But when I hear their stories, what they aimed at was a specific task or specific purpose or outcome. And what came from that was money. So they were aiming at something very different than what it produced. And I think we're wise to remember that for ourselves too. Aim at that purpose. Yes, be incredibly proactive work hard, but aim at that purpose and let the dollar amount be the overflow of that. And again, that's not just lip service. That's a lot of anecdotal data. Tina, as we begin to wrap up our conversation, tell us what's one thing that you want to do that you haven't done yet in life? Mm, Yes. Well, this goes back to the day-to-day. Writing is a daily practice for me. It's a daily joy. It's a daily love affair. So compiling that into something with a very clear message would be definitely, definitely a peak experience for me. What's your next money conversation and who's it going to be with? Mm. So it's another twofold answer. My next money conversation, the first one will be with myself as I reflect on this conversation with both of you and this has filled in a couple of gaps for me that I didn't realize were there. So that's my first conversation. (laughs) And the next one will be 
continuing these core values conversations with the, the families that I sit with and learning from them. There is beauty in these types of conversations and in the shared humanity. We learn from each other. We all need it. I think at some level we all crave it. So ongoing conversations. And thank you both for this one. This has been a delight. Thank you, Tina. Yes. Thanks, Tina. This has been a complete gift to us. We love talking with you about money and we wish you well as you continue to write and pursue all the amazing things that set your heart on fire. Thank you. Cammie here with a personal finance insight. During our conversation with Tina Lovejoy, she shared some thoughts about how to talk about money. As regular listeners of Money Tales know, the goal of our podcast is to use the power of storytelling to help people become more comfortable having money conversations in their own lives. In this insight, we're going to share a few ideas about how to start those conversations. First, let's acknowledge that many of us struggle with the idea of having money conversations, even and sometimes especially with the people that we're closest to. There are a plethora of reasons for this. Some people are strictly raised not to talk about money, and the idea of doing something contrary to that feels deeply uncomfortable. Or we have strong feelings about money like shame or guilt, insecurity, or even envy that blocks us from talking about it. Some of us may feel general unease about discussing such a private topic. And many of us have never experienced productive money conversations, so we have no models to draw from. Let's face it it can be especially uncomfortable and challenging to initiate conversations with a spouse or partner. Some people worry that doing so could signal to our significant other that we ourselves are too focused on money, or perhaps even worse, that we're judging the other person's spending and savings habits. Wherever you happen to be coming from, we know that you are capable of having the money conversations you're looking to have. The key is to inch out of your comfort zone to where the magic happens. First, we recommend planning ahead. Give some thought to who you'd like to have the conversation with and what you'd like to cover. If you have meaty topics to discuss, you may want to have multiple money conversations to gain practice, rapport, and understanding that will help you tackle the more serious topics over time. Also, be sure to create the time and physical space for the conversation. Maybe you want to have it on a weekend afternoon in your living room or at the dining room table over dinner, or maybe you'd like to be outside in nature. Choose a place and time that will help you and the person or people you're talking with be most comfortable and distraction-free. We also recommend casually asking the person you'd like to have the money conversation with for permission. You want to make sure they're open to covering the ground you're looking to cover. Give some thought based on your relationship with this person and the topics you plan to discuss, whether it's best to ask permission days or minutes in advance of having the conversation. Now it's time to start the conversation. As you know from Money Tales, we find that looking backwards and discussing the past to be a nice entree to money talk. The past holds many aha moments and insights for most of us. Discussing past experiences with those we trust can help us tap into situations, examine them, and extract money wisdom that can serve us well as we move forward in life. Here are some conversation starter ideas. I was thinking about how money was handled in my family when I was growing up, and it made me curious about your experience. Can we share our stories and look to uncover insights? Or here's another one. When you were growing up, when and what did you think about money? Another approach that you might find more fun to jumpstart a money conversation is to compare metaphors. For example, you and your conversation partner could each respond to this question. 
If money were a food, what food would it be for you and why? Or another alternative, if money were an animal, which would it be for you and why? To bring this conversation starter to life, let me take a whack at this. For me, if money were a food, it would be a coconut because it's hard to get since it's way up in the trees. It's soft and delicious if you work hard enough to get at the meat. And if money were an animal, for me, it would be an octopus because there are a lot of ways to make money, like the arms of an octopus. They can grow back their arms if they lose it, which is the same with money, but you still have to be cautious to stay safe. Another strategy is to start the conversation by voicing your curiosity about money topics and then invite the other person to explore it with you. For example, I'm curious about how I can save more money. Would you share with me how you manage your expenses so I can see if your methods might work for me? Or, I just listened to a podcast focused on talking about money, and it got me thinking about, this is where you fill in the blank, I wonder what your thoughts are on this topic. As you can see, there's no single best way to start a money conversation. We encourage you to experiment with different methods. This will help you gain comfort and ease. We encourage you to give it a try soon, and we'd love to hear from you about how it goes, so please share with us at podcastsatesperient.com. Just imagine, what will it be like if when you can intentionally have whatever money conversation you like to have while feeling totally comfortable and in control? We hope you enjoyed today's financial insight. For more, please listen to the end of Other Money Tales podcasts or go to our blog Fathom at Asperient.com forward slash Fathom. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.